Hey, next on the T-Nation, thanks for tuning into this very special segment of the show featuring one of the all-time great golf analysts and on-course broadcasters, Maureen Medill. Maureen and I talk about a whole array of things. We get into a little bit of her playing career. We talk about the Scottish Open. We look ahead to the Open Championship. We talk about Rory, the PIF, PGA Tour, merger, whatever, partnership, whatever you want to call it. Maureen is great. I hope you enjoy this segment as much as I did getting to spend some time with Maureen. Again, she is just one of the all-time great people you get to meet in this game. Thank you again for making Next on the Tee a part of your golf content. I appreciate you all so very much. Enjoy the segment. Okay, now next on the tee with me, folks, is the great Maureen Medill. Maureen is one of the all-time great golf analysts and on-course broadcasters. Every radio broadcast and tournament she does is infinitely better because she is a part of it. For how she paints the pictures, for what's happening around her, it's just outstanding. Just one of the all-time greats at what she does. Going back into her playing career, Maureen won the British Ladies Amateur Championship back in 1979 and the British Ladies Amateur Stroke Play Championship in 1980. She represented Great Britain and Ireland in the Curtis Cup in 1980 and then coached the team from 1998 to 2004. She turned pro in 1986 and played on the Ladies European Tour for a decade. As a commentator, she has worked for the BBC, Sky Sports, and Sirius XM, and I'm very honored to have her back with me today and next on the T. Hey, Maureen, thanks for coming back on the show. Well, Chris, it's long time no speak, and it's lovely to catch up again. Same here. So, Maureen, I keep up to date with what you're doing on your blog posts, on your website, which are outstanding. It's so much fun to read. It sounds like you've been on a whirlwind tour for the last few weeks. Talk about your rail, uh, rail car adventure. Oh, well, like Chris, that was, uh, that was actually my sister's. Well, the, my sister and I both do the blog and we do sometimes get technically challenged. And on that particular blog that you're referring to, it had my name at the bottom of it instead of Patricia's. And we are both so hopeless that we weren't <laughs> able to rectify that. So my sister, Patricia Davies, um, wrote uh, for the Times of London on golf for over 20 years. So she has got probably near 100 majors under her belt or had before she retired. So that was actually her whistle-stop tour. No, I've been a little bit more home-based. So, okay. Um I got to get your thoughts on on what's going on around the game right now, and 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 I want to, you know, I want to get into all of that in a moment. But before we do, I want to go back into your playing career because, like I said in your intro, you won the Ladies British Amateur Championship, and you did so by defeating Jane Locke two and one. You were two up at the turn in that event, then you go out and you eagle thirteen, you birdie fourteen to go up. Four up with four holes to go. And you became the first Irish winner at that time since 1957. Go back into, into your playing career. What was it like for you to win that tournament? Well, you know, Chris, I must say I'm astounded at your research. That is because everything you've said is absolutely accurate. And what you're saying there about the final match, I mean, we are talking about a long time ago, um, is bringing it back to me. Um I I went over there to Nairn in Scotland, one of the great golf courses, and I was um, really just um, 
hoping to make the 30, make the cut qualify for the match play stages. There was 36 holes of qualifying and 32 to make the cut. And I did, I do recall getting four up and four to go. And the 15th hole had had the green relay. And the green was very different to all the other greens. And I ended up having about a three, three and a half, four footer maybe to close out the match. And I'm not saying I would have hold it, but it was a very dodgy piece of green. And I don't think I even hit the hole. And then the very next hole, uh, my opponent, Jane Locke, birdied. So that was that one gone. And I managed to very nervously scrape out a half and four at the 17th. And um, yes, I was the first winner for, for a long, long time. And uh, it, it, it actually queued in a lot of celebrations back in the Emerald Isle. So, it, I mean, great days, great days. And great memories, but, oh, a million years ago, Chris. <laughs> Speaking of celebrations back home, I mean, we know legendary when, when Shane Lowry won the Open Championship. What was it like for you to return and, and feel the embrace of uh, your countrymen? Well, do you know what? That was uh, absolutely terrific. I was totally determined in 2019 that I was not going to be working at the Open. I'm, I have been a member of that golf club for well over 50 years and I wanted to go and enjoy it I wanted to be able to you know meet my friends and have a glass of wine at lunchtime and not have responsibilities so I just said a flat no to everybody about working and it was it was one of the best decisions I made and you know I walked every step outside the ropes on that Sunday with Shane Lowry in that atrocious weather. And I wouldn't have traded it for anything. It was a phenomenal victory. It was, it was fairy tale stuff. You know, if you had a film about it and first of all, the excitement about getting the open back to Northern Ireland after so many years and all the attendant difficulties and the troubles that the province had gone through and so on, you know, it was just I mean, it, that was a dream. And then to have an Irishman win at Portbrush, uh, it, you know, I almost feel I can die happy. It was one of the <laughs> greatest moments uh, for me in golf. And um, I have a poster in my kitchen that I got at Portrush, and I've been waiting four years to get Shane to sign it. So I'm taking it with me up to Hoylake next week um, and hoping that our paths cross, that I just bump into him because, you know, once the ma- once they get serious, I wouldn't ask him anyway, even, you know, when I, if I were interviewing him or anything. But if I see him Monday, Tuesday, I'm going to haul that poster out and get it signed so I can finally get it framed and up on the wall. <laughs> That's great. And speaking of Hoylake, I read you recently went over to Royal Liverpool and spent the day with former Curtis Cup player Maureen Richmond going around the course. What was it like to go around Royal Liverpool? Well, it's lovely. I mean, it's such a beautiful golf course, really testing. Um, And I have to say, we got a really nice day to walk around. She is a member there. So I had the benefit of her expertise. She knows the course inside out. And, um, uh, you know, we've had a lot of 
I don't think the course is going to be as fast running as a lot of people um, expect. We have had quite a lot of rain here. And, um, you know, from the purest, Lynx purest point of view, I think the locals would like to see it maybe running a little bit faster than it's going to. Um, but we've, we've got a bit of rain mixed into wind over the, for the forecast over the next sort of few days. So it's certainly not going to be anything like it was when Tiger won here back in 2006. So as you were going around the golf course, what other notes did you make about it to help get you prepared for the broadcast next week? Well, there's a number of change, uh, physical changes to the golf course that the, the RNA preferred designer, Martin Ebert, has instigated. And a lot of them would be pretty much unnoticeable, um, even to the players who've played there before. Maybe, you know, a couple of greens have been slightly altered and moved just to facilitate maybe lengthening the tee for the next hole. But there is one brand new hole, which will be a huge talking point. And it's a little par three. It plays the club, the way the club play the course, it's the 15th hole. The way the course is played for the championship, it is the 17th hole. And it's about 130 yards uphill, a little pimple green, skyline green. You need to hit that green. Now, it's the sort of hole, Chris, that will, you know, from Monday to it's no big deal. But as the week goes on, it's a hole that's harder at the weekend than it is at any other time. And, of course, if we get the strong breezes coming in off the estuary, it's going to be very, very difficult. It could be pivotal in the championship. It's very controversial. It divides the members. Some love it. Others loathe it. If you're on the green, fine. If you miss the green, you're going to be thinking, how on earth can I get out of here and get to the next tee relatively safely? Speaking of if you get any wind and rain and, and the things that we've come to expect at an open championship, I know there are two par fives on the back nine over 600 yards. 16 has three pothole bunkers lined up on either side of the green. So if the wind is up or it's raining and we get, we get heavy air, it seems like that hole could also be a nightmare to play. Well, there's the thing is that the, the the most dangerous bunker on that hole is about fifty yards short. You've got the three up by the green, but there's one that's short, and that that's a that's a no no because uh, that's the one that's going to really test them. If they can't get around the green surrounds or the green surface in two on a given day, that's the one that's going to make a layup very significant. Um, and again, then on 18, the whole, the, there's a new team much further back and they've added quite a lot of yardage to that hole. So again, that one is over 600 yards long and they have brought the out of bounds in a little bit closer on the right hand side. There's an internal out of bounds on that one. And, you know, with the nerves jangling, um, the pressure and expectation. You know, it, it changes the playing of holes. It changes your body when you're up there having to execute. And, uh, it's going to be very, very interesting to see who the last man left standing is going to be. 
Maureen, when I look over the golf course and some of the flyovers and some of the pictures uh, of the course, the green complexes remind me a bit of Augusta National in that there appears to be just a small area where you can land the ball and have it stay relatively close to the hole, give yourself an opportunity for birdie. And if you miss that window, the players are going to have, I don't know, 30, 40 footer. The ball could roll really back all the way off the green. Is that accurate? Does it look like it's a very small window for where the players are going to have an opportunity to land the golf ball and have a reasonable opportunity to make birdie? Well, the greens are very subtle, Chris. They're very subtle. And they're not, they aren't really as heavily sectioned, of course, as the ones at Augusta National. Um, there's a lot of places that middle of the green, two putts, move on is is very good. I think that this championship will be one off the tee. Now, it's very, it's a very strategic golf course and it's not driver off the tee everywhere, but it's placement off the tee. And sometimes that does depend on where the whole location is in a particular day, but frequently it actually doesn't. And if you think back to the way that Tiger won in 2006, um, now admittedly it was, it was like playing down the motorway. It was so fast and fiery, but he hit one driver in the 72 holes and he played irons. He, but he put the ball in the right place off the tee. You cannot win at Hoylake coming from the wrong angles. It's a very angled golf course and. So the green complexes, some of them are they are unkind because, as you suggest, they will repel the ball. They're not all like that. Um, but to me, consistently, you can't score around there unless you're hitting it from the right side of the fairway. When you go back into the last couple of Opens that have played there, when Rory won, in 2014, his finishing score was 17 under. You mentioned Tiger a couple of times. When he won in 06, it was 18 under. Do you think it's going to take a score around that to win again this year? Well, I think um, I think those scores would definitely win. <laughs> um, oh, you know, that's so hard to answer, Chris, because with links, it's completely weather dependent. Um, it really is, as you know. Um, I had a quick look at the forecast, the latest forecast, just before we I came on to chat with you now, and it's it's only at the moment registering a sort of a one and a half to a two club wind. Well, that's something that the members up at Hoylake would say. What well, they'd say that was a calm day. So you know that's not going to. These are the greatest players in the world. That that's not too bad at all for them. They won't really notice it that much. Um. Uh, so I would, I think maybe something round about that 13. I'd go if, if somebody gave me 13 or 13 to 14, I'd just say, fine, thanks. I'll sit in the clubhouse and take my chances. <laughs> and speaking of Rory, as we sit here on the Saturday of the Scottish Open, Rory is playing really well. He's got a one stroke lead over Tom Kim, two over. Tommy Fleetwood and Brian Harmon going into tomorrow's final round. And I know you're a big Rory fan. So how do you like his chances, not only this weekend to, to finish off this Scottish Open, but 
going into Royal Liverpool? Do you know, it's um, it's quite, this is sound, going to sound crazy, but it's quite difficult being a Rory fan because he is so, his game is so sublime. And, you know, I've watched today's coverage and he hits such glorious iron shots that just because he doesn't hold every putt, you start to think that he's putting poorly. And prop, sometimes that's what he thinks. Um, you just kind of feel that he hasn't measured up quite in this world number one situation, bouncing around between himself, John Ram, and Scotty Scheffler. Rory's just fallen off the radar a little bit for for lots of reasons, obviously off course reasons, which are fairly apparent. Um, and I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, well, he really should be about four shots ahead now. And then I'm thinking, well, do I want him to win tomorrow? Because it's so difficult to win twice in a row. So, you know, you start getting superstitious. But I'll tell you who I really do think could come under the radar for Hoylake, and that is Shane Lowry, because he's at a sort of frustrating type of a year. And he is just getting himself together, and he is hungry for, for more majors. And he's just... He's a very emotional player, Shane, and he has to feel good. And he, you know, he's not a, he wears his heart in his sleeve a bit. And I just think that his game is moving nicely in the right direction. But, you know, there's, it's just going to be very exciting to see what they all make of it. Speaking of Rory's a little bit of a struggle, I, I, I think most of us are rooting hard for Rory to complete the career Grand Slam. Unfortunately, he didn't make the cut this year at Augusta National, which is the second time in the last three years that he hasn't made the cut. It's sort of wrapped around that second place finish last year. Maureen, what do, what do you think? Is the Masters in Augusta National, is it too much in his head to get that win? Oh, gosh. Well, I hope not. I hope not. I'm like you. I mean, I really always felt that the one that Rory would find the most difficult to win was the Open, because despite having been brought up in it, you know, he's not a fan of of the really bad weather conditions. I mean, Rory is a high ball hitter. He has frequently said that he's not going to change his ball flight significantly just for one or two weeks of the year. Now, Rory has said some sort of slightly cavalier things in the past and then revised his opinion. Um, And I'm sure he will have revised that by now. But you would have thought that Augusta was right up his alley. So. Yes, it's bound to be in his head. And I don't think it helps that there's something like almost, what is it, eight and a half months between the end of, you know, the Open now and then the next major, he's got nothing to do but think about that up ahead of him. It's very, very difficult. Uh, it's, you know, if you could, you can imagine if he ever does win, it'll be like a pressure cooker exploding because uh, how do you, how do you manage intensity and desire of that level so that you can not impair your sporting performance i mean that is the big question and that is what he's going to have to master if he wants to win the career grand slam i mean he won his majors in very short order really with the sort of carefree attitude of youth before you would say he realized just how blooming difficult it is to win. 
And, you know, he's older and wiser and he realizes now that you need so many things going in your your way to win on a week at the major. And frequently you need a little bit of help from the other players. And Rory hasn't had that recently. Um, so, no, he's got to, it's, it's one of these conundrums and the only person that can find the answer to the puzzle is himself. And he's still working on that very, very hard. Maureen, I want to get your thoughts on Padraig Harrington because at almost 52 years of age, he's probably hitting the ball as long and as well as he ever has. We know he won back-to-back Open Championships in 2007 and eight, and he isn't all that far removed from contending in a major, finished tied for fourth at the PGA Championship in 2021. He won the U.S. Senior Open last year. Could he top Phil and become the oldest major champion? Well, I mean, like, I think he's so he's discovered the elixir of youth and he's drinking from it. So if I see him next week, I'm going to ask him what on earth he's on. I mean, it's uh, I I had. Uh, I've all Podrick's a great guy, as you know, Chris, always very generous, um, you know, with the media. And he's a very deep thinker and he just has kept his head down through the highs and lows of a very long career. And he seems to, he's so thoroughly enjoying senior golf. And he dips in and out now and again to these majors. And he's a wily old bird. So he will know how to get the best out of his game. And I do think that on balance, the Open is probably out of the four majors, the one where the older players do have a wee bit more of a chance because Hoylick in particular, as I, as I was trying to explain about the, uh, the strategy off the tee, it brings a lot of shorter hit. Well, he, he's, Podrick's hitting as long, but you know, for the older players in general, the shorter hitters aren't out of it the way they might be in the course setup of some of the other majors. And, um, Podrick is just, uh, he's loving life. He, he's almost Gary Player like in an interview where you ask him one question and then you don't have to say anything for the next 25 minutes and he will, <laughs> he will cover A to Z. And, you know, he fans, he'll very quietly fancy his chances. You know, he's very fit. He's very wise. He's getting his eye in there up at the Renaissance Club in Scotland. Yeah. I mean, he's a good shout. And I mean, if we're talking about older players, I think somebody who, really could do well is Justin Rose. You know, he's had a bit of a research. It's got had a couple of extremely poor years. One in Pebble Beach in February and has had a great injection of confidence working with a new coach from last November. And, you know, he, he's got his eye on the Ryder Cup as well. So he needs he needs an open championship win just to almost bookend a fantastic career. So I think there'll be a few of the older ones up there this year. Maureen, switching gears a little bit, I want to get your thoughts on this whole PIF, PGA Tour, partnership, merger, whatever you want to call it. And your blog post about it, you accurately point out that the Tour and Rory can say all they want about Monaghan being CEO and they're going to decide where the PIF money gets spent. But in reality... He who holds the purse strings always has the power. How do you think this whole thing plays out? 
Well, I, I, I don't like it, Chris, and I, I don't have a crystal ball, but I don't think it's healthy for any sport when all the eggs are in one basket. Now, you know, the PGA Tour, um, where have been the dominant force in world golf for a long time, which I can't say I was always thrilled about, but at least there was a European tour. There was an Asian tour. There was a Japanese tour. Now, if this merger or whatever you like to call it goes ahead, the only tour that will exist that is not under the auspices of the Saudis is the Japanese tour. And I just don't think that's a very desirable situation. If I were a young 18-year-old lad or 16-year-old lad wanting to turn pro in the next few years, my choices are, you know, it's it's nearly all under one umbrella. And I, I don't think, I don't think monopolies are particularly healthy. But, and the one thing that gets right under my skin is the way that this phrase, growing the game, gets trotted out by all and sundry, and that all this money coming in is going to grow the game. All this money coming in just makes uh, a few people at the very pointy end of the pyramid, a few wealthy people at the very pointed pointy end of a pyramid, even more wealthy. My, I consider growing the game is having a public facility in every town and village up and down the country where kids can go and play and they have a putting green and a chipping green or a six-hole golf course and they have equipment available and they can play for a few euros or a few dollars or for nothing, whereby you get you have inclusivity and you get more and more people playing and which is good for their health, good for their mental health, their physical health, good for the game, not pouring obscene amounts of money and sending it in the direction of people who, compared to most of us, already have obscene amounts of money. So um you know, and like the, I heard uh, Stacey Lewis, Solheim Cup captain, uh, saying not that long ago that it was very hard for the women to see all this money going towards men's game and not nothing to them. And my, my soul is just screaming out, don't do anything. I mean, yes, there's, there is, uh, they're playing at the moment in London, the women within the Aramco, uh, team series. Yes, have some of your sponsorship coming from that area, but if, hold your fire because if this does go ahead, surely there will be a lot of corporations and big business and people who might decide, well, actually, you know, we we are going to take a step back. We don't want to go down that route and be involved with them. And they're looking for, if you like, a slightly different model. And I think that the women's game could benefit hugely if they hold their nerve and don't just jump into bed to get this 
you know, the vast amounts of money. Uh, I don't know. I mean, like, maybe I'm just too, maybe this is pie in the sky. And, you know, money talks, Chris, money talks. But, you know, why does it always have to be the winner? I, I, I don't like the way the game is going. And, you know, I just look at some of these players and I think, when, what is ever enough for them? There's a sense of entitlement there. And on this side of the pond, we don't understand it quite as much as you because I do know that the golfers in America, they, they look at other sports people in America. You'll be able to tell me more accurately about this, like the, your football players, like your baseball players, like your basketball players. And the golfers feel maybe undervalued or they don't earn as much. Is that correct? That is um, correct. So therefore, they're driven by this. You see, we don't, we don't have that sort of comparison. And so to most of us over here, I think we're just shaking our heads, um, and feeling a little bit sad about it all. So let's take that a step further, because when you look at the total purses that are getting paid out on the PGA tour, one of the things, and Rory said this a little bit uh, a few months back. I mean, when you look at these elevated events with the $20 million purses on the PGA Tour, I mean, the majors don't pay out $20 million. One of the things Rory mentioned is, you know, hey, we're in danger here. Not him, but other players may look at it and go, you know what? The Masters total purse is only a little over $17 million. The next week we've got an elevated event. That's $20 million. I may skip the Masters and go get ready to to, to play in, in another elevated event. And and that's the problem. Here, here's where I feel like we're, we're headed, Maureen. And I... I agree with, I think, the sentiment you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong, but when you when you bring in a partner like the PIF, well, mm-hmm. we got we to gotta boost up some of these tournaments to get to a, the $20 million level, and you can't keep squeezing your sponsors. I mean, we've already seen AT&T right. back out of, yeah. uh, out of the Byron Nelson because, well, we're just going to focus on, you know, the, the Pro-Am in February. We, we can't afford to do two. So now you're starting to, to squeeze your sponsors. And maybe, and maybe if, if I'm a sponsor and I can no longer get to this $20 million purse that you're requiring me to do, maybe a different model is the LPGA tour and the, and the ladies tour and to go over and say, you know what? For a little less money, I can probably get just, I, I love the game of golf. I want to be a sponsor with golf. I want to be involved with the game. Maybe I need to go over and take a look at the LPGA tour and help them. Versus what's going on in the PGA Tour, because you're right. At some point, Maureen, I've I've said this, and, and you, you ask about our other sports. I mean, guys making you know three or four hundred million. You know, Shohei Otani may get a half a million or half a billion dollars in mm-hmm. his next in his next contract. At some point, the house of cards has to fall in, and maybe it's starting to on the PGA Tour. But it, it, all of this money just seems like it is really taking our game in the wrong direction. That's just my opinion. Yes, I, I, I agree with you. And I don't, oh, it's just so difficult. I don't have, have the answers, but sometimes money is just like a cancer and it just spreads through the sport. And we, we are a sport who, um, you know, largely self policing from the rules point of view. We've always had a slightly, um, superior, uh, <laughs> view of ourselves as regards our integrity and our code of behavior and our 
sportsmanship and all of this. And I just, uh, it's, yeah, I, I love golf, Chris. I love golf. I, and it's not because I haven't wanted to watch. I looked at the first live golf thing last year and I find it unwatchable. I haven't the, fa- I haven't the faintest idea who plays in what team, which is the thing they're always bashing on about, uh, and their franchises. And I, I think, oh, there was a live golf tournament. I must, I must look up to see who won. So I look up to see who won and they're winning what four million or something for 54 holes, shotgun start. And you think, oh, right. And you know, Taylor Gooch has won a couple of those. Well, that's great. So as a fan, I'm not excited by the amount of money that they win. That's some, it doesn't do it for me. You know, it's, it's the fact that it isn't, it, I, it can't be true. You can't, it isn't truly competitive. And for me, that's not sport. You can't be competitive when you have a shotgun start. The great golf courses of this world, they're built, they're a little bit like a wonderful piece of music. They tend to have uh, little quiet periods and they build to a crescendo and a climax at certain parts, normally the penultimate home or the finishing stretch, that kind of thing, where the pressure gets greatest and there are more demands made on the players. Now, if you and I are playing in a live event and I tee off on the 13th, I might have that stretch of the course when there's not a lot of pressure on because there's still another 14 holes or whatever to go afterwards for me. But you're starting on the first. It's, so that's not even a level playing field. You know, you're not facing the same things with the same things on the line. And it, it, I can't buy into it while it, for me, in essence, does not have the true sporting element in it. And, you know, I understand why a lot of these players went there. And I don't even, I don't, I'm not blaming them. Like, I'm not blaming them at all. They're professional people. They, they're in it to make money. But for it to almost, well, it has created a situation whereby uh, Mr. Al Rumayan, who wanted the uh, seat at the top table in the sport, has acquired that through using Live Golf as the vehicle. So I'm not sure that he was too bothered about li- the Live Golf model, but he has got what he wants a top top seat. But and it, they're not alone in golf. They've they've got um, uh, our our soccer teams. They've got bought Newcastle United over here. They've bought four teams in the Saudi league. They're paying absolutely exorbitant amounts of money to our soccer players to go over and play in Saudi Arabia. They're in Formula One. They're into the horse racing. They're um, taking over the boxing. They're into tennis. You know, don't pretend they've got any love of golf. I, 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 I just don't, I don't like it, Chris. I just don't like it. Sorry. <laughs> no, I'm with you. Maureen, you mentioned the word integrity a minute ago, and I, I wonder, get your thoughts on, you know, the tour players. Can, can they ever trust Jay Monahan again? Ah, well, mm, I wouldn't. 
I wouldn't. I mean, you can't have a person, you know, trying to take the moral high ground, uh, you know, 12 months ago about the Saudi money and the whole very contentious situation with the 9-11 and any evidence that, you know, Saudi Arabia was involved in those attacks. And then, of course, Adnan Khashoggi, that horrendous situation. You cannot take the moral ground and say, tell your players that, you know, you can't touch this. This is dirty money. And then do a 180 and have their trust. How can you? Right. So from, you know, we talk about the live players and and what they do. What is your thought on those guys having an opportunity to play in the Ryder Cup? Should they be allowed? I tend to think that um, the Ryder Cup, you are representing your continent. And I do tend to think that it should be irrelevant where you play. So um, it would be, for example, it would be crazy for the Americans not to have Brooks Kepka. Now, Brooks has probably got enough world ranking points. I haven't looked at the list recently. But, um, you know, I I would have I would have them in the Ryder Cup, and I think I've changed because maybe back in the early days I would have thought no, but but um, we're playing the same game, we're playing golf. The Ryder Cup is the greatest thing, uh, isn't, it, isn't it? Rather ironic, they don't actually get paid for playing in the Ryder Cup, but they all <laughs> want to play in it. Right. I mean, there's, there's a thing, but no, I I would I would I think the Americans would lose maybe lose more by not having your players. A lot of our players who went to live, um, you know, are in the twilight of their careers anyway. And there's always a a changeover, isn't there? A cyclical change in in team things. So we've we've got with Holter, Casey, uh, Sergio. Hmm, You know, I, I think we were... It was possible that they were most of them were going to sort of not be on anyway this time, but no, my, I'm I'm waffling here, but basically I would say yes, I would have right. I, you're representing your continent; it shouldn't matter where you play. Later this year in September, we've got the Solheim Cup coming up over in Spain. You covered that event, and you have in the past for the BBC. Are you going to be uh, out there again there? I'm not going to the no. I'm not going to the Solheim. Um, I'm going to be watching it from home, um, but I am going to Rome. But again, not to work. My sister and I are going together. We did this when it was at Paris in 2018, and we go for when they're such when the venue is such such beautiful iconic cities. We we'll, we go and we'll have like the week leading up to the matches. Um, doing all the stuff and the sites in the city and in Rome. And, you know, we're fortunate enough we've attended so many of these. We don't, don't, you know, not mad about going to opening ceremonies or things because we're very fortunate we've done all that. So we are going to do half the touristy thing and then get the old golf shoes on and tramp round and watch the matches for three days. So we're, I'm really, really looking forward to that. 
but the Solheim should be magnificent as well. It's, uh, uh, it's, well, they're the pivotal opposite of live golf, aren't they? They're the absolute <laughs> lifeblood of the sport and, you know, the essence, the essence of competition. I love it. Maureen, just a couple more before I let you go. And uh, you worked alongside the great Peter Alice, which had to be a huge thrill. What are some of your favorite Peter Alice stories? <laughs> well, oh gosh. Um, oh, I just loved Peter. Absolutely loved him. Um, and we had a lot of fun and a lot of fun commentating together. And but what a great dinner companion he was! But I remember uh, where oh, I I suppose the first time I would have been in the commentary box with them would have been back in the early two thousands, and I was very nervous, of course. And in those days, what the BBC did because they don't do any live golf now, but they used to have three commentators. No, they used to have two commentators on at a time. So there would be maybe Ken Brown and Peter Alice would be rostered on together. And then, you know, after an hour or whatever, maybe I would be rostered on with Peter. And then it would be I'd be rostered on with Ken. So anyway, um, I had I was due to start after lunch on this particular day. And I was very nervous about the great Peter. And I had done a small section in the morning with Ken. And this was after lunch. And I thought, I'll sit in the commentary box. I wasn't due to be on, but I thought, well, I want to watch these two, listen on the headset and learn as much as I can from sitting, but watching them as well and seeing how they interacted with each other in the commentary box. So I'm sitting there minding my own business. And then Peter suddenly, he he he, he points his microphone at me. And I'm sitting, I don't have my headphones on or anything. And he gesticulates, you know, like a, a matador with a sword using his microphone. He gesticulates at my, my headset and he's indicating for me to get it on. And I thought, Oh my goodness, Peter, Peter Alice wants me to come in early here. This was like 20 minutes before I was due to be read, you know, on. So I, I, I'm, bit filled with pride because I thought, oh, he must have liked what I'd done in the morning, get the headset on. And um, he gesticulates, you know, at the on-air button. And I switch it on and he's, he, he gesticulates with his hand, on you go. And so I started in to say whatever I was saying. And Ken took it up, you see. And the next thing, Ken asked me a question and I answer. And before I know where we are, Ken and I are commentating. And the next thing I hear from next to me, and I looked round and Peter has got his headset off, the microphone down, and he's having a post-lunch nap. And that's the only <laughs> reason he wanted me to come on early. Not because, not because he thought I had a single interesting thing to offer, but he was ready for a snooze. <laughs> well, we had great times, Chris. We really had great times. That's awesome. Maureen, um, one of the other things that's changing in our game is the style of dress. I mean, we see tour players now that are out there, they're wearing hoodies, they're wearing joggers, they got the no-show socks, and you can see their ankles and all that sort of stuff. You're, how do you feel about what the dress code is becoming on the PGA Tour? 
I think there should be no dress code in golf, Chris. Full stop. Let them wear what they like. So they're okay with you. Do you feel okay with the shorts? Because I see that on, on, you know, Live Golf obviously wears shorts. I know we all wear shorts when we go out to play golf for the most part. I, I know that's been a huge thing about, well, you know, should they wear shorts? Ah, that's not professional. I'm all for it. Let them wear shorts. We wear shorts. Why can't they wear shorts? Listen, I mean, for goodness sake, we're in the 21st century and you've got to, like, nobody really wants to go out there. They don't look in the mirror in the morning and think, right, now how can I make the worst of myself? Do they? <laughs> I mean, honestly. Now, you might not like a particular person's fashion, but it, but that's all. That's all it is. I mean, you wouldn't dream of, um, I mean, of criticizing another person. We all, if we went to a cocktail party this evening and I turned up in something that you thought made me look like a right sketch, you're not going to come over and tell me, you know, honestly, Mo, you shouldn't be wearing that. You know, I mean, you're not. I'm not trying to look like a right sketch, but maybe I think it looks grand. You don't. But does it matter? I mean, really? You know, what's wrong with that diversity? It's the 21st century. Ever, Even since the pandemic, dress and clothing has become a lot more informal and casual because we all got stuck at home and probably lived in our joggers and our hoodies. <laughs> and whatever. But, you know, most people who are going to be out there on a stage as a professional golfer wanting eyeballs on them because they want to be in contention. They want to have the big crowds with them. They want to be on the television screens. They're not going to think, well, let's see how awful I can look. <laughs> I, I, th there's, I think there's just a lot. I mean, what a waste of time worrying about. I mean, having... You know, just because you dress a certain way, I have seen people impeccably dressed on the golf course and they have no manners. So how you dress has got nothing to do with your, doesn't necessarily have anything to do with your courtesy, your manners, knowing how to behave. So right. I would, I wouldn't have any dress code. I couldn't agree with that more. <laughs> Oh, I thought we were going to be in the opposite side of the fence. No. What a no. disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> we, could, we could have argued a little bit on the lip side uh, with the with the uh, shotgun starts and all that sort of stuff. Um, because Yes, I'm sure we could. I'm sure yeah. we could. But uh, on the dress side, I, I have been a proponent since the, the live guys got to wear shorts. I'm like, you know, for crying out loud, we get to wear shorts out there. It, and, 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 you know, some folks that I have on this show argue the point that, well, they're professional. They should look professional. You don't wear shorts when you go to the office every day. And yeah, I, I, I hear you, but you know what? It's, it's 98 degrees outside here. And look, if, if someone wants to wear shorts again, I wear shorts on the golf course. Why do I have to make those guys wear long pants and all of that sort of stuff? I think that's, I think that's a silly notion. I'm all for the hoodies. Uh, I'm not. I'm not so much for the for the jogging pants. But you know what? Hey, if you want to wear joggers, wear joggers. To me, exactly. it's all, it's yes. all about getting the ball in the hole. That's what I care about. You you mentioned earlier, and some other folks talk about this with the live side. Is you know, 
how much money a guy wins at the end of the golf tournament isn't why I'm tuning in to watch, right? Whatever right. their, whatever the first place money is down to the, the, whoever, whatever the number is that, that made the cut, whatever those guys make, those guys make. I really don't care. That's not going to make me watch the golf, golf tournament or not. I'm, I'm here about getting the golf ball in the hole. And how did you do it? And, you know, marvel at their incredible skill level. That's what I'm watching for. Whether they're in yes. shorts or long pants or joggers or a hoodie, I could care less. And, you know, Chris, I, I do think, though, that one of the single most um, uh, negative things that ha there has been about our sport for the last 30, 40 years is is the dress code at golf clubs. You know, it has kept um, youngsters from, it's made them run a mile because of these fuddy-duddy, outdated notions. And again, the fuddy-duddies at the golf clubs equate how you're dressed with how you behave. And the two do not go hand in hand necessarily. And, you know, there's wonderful sporting um, clothing now. The kids want to look smart. You know, don't dress them up like little mini people out of an office from 1950. <laughs> so, like, I think, and, you know, I've for a long time uh, been a probably a bit of a lone voice uh, um, about this, but I'm dead against dress rules. I think the worst thing that I can, I, if I go into a golf club I've never been in before and in the, in the entrance hall, um, this happens frequently over here still in 2023. You go in and there's a notice board up and it'll be, or you look on a club's website, dress rules, dress code. That is enough without even reading it to make me turn around and, and, not darken the door of that clubhouse. No, and I and I agree with that. And I still see that obviously here as well about yeah. what you need to wear and all that sort of stuff, which to me, just one of the things we've had to overcome in our game for the last several decades is the idea of elitism and that sort of thing. Yes. And to me, that that is that is a poster for we're elitist here. So you have to wear this, that and the other thing in order to be able to play on our golf course. And to mm -hmm. your point, it had. Look, I I have buddies that are you know, that are dressed to the nines and are going to go out there and destroy that golf course because they can't break 120. And you know the <laughs> swearing and the this and the that and all that sort of stuff that mm -hmm. that that isn't doing our our game or their course any favors yeah. versus someone that might wear joggers or a t shirt and yeah. go out there and play and have a good time. To me, that is growing the game. Let us wear whatever we want. Let's invite more people in. Let's let's have a better attitude about our game and get rid of this elitist idea. That's going to go miles towards growing the game than throwing tens of millions of dollars into PGA Tour players or yeah. live tour. Yes, being able to play. absolutely. I think we're we're in total agreement on that, Chris, for sure. Maureen, you before I, you and I should be running this game, right? <laughs> this is what I'm saying. When they, when they decide that Jay Monahan is no longer fit for this, they had a call up. Let's go. We'll we'll change it around. <laughs> Maureen, before I let you go, like I say, in my mind, you're the best on-course commentator in the history of our game. Where can our listeners hear you the rest of this year? 
Well, um, I'll be on Sirius XM for this Open Championship. And any of your listeners who will be over at the Open, um, I will be working for Open Radio. So that's the little radios that are sold on the golf course. And so you, when you get on the shuttle buses from the car parks or, you know, you're going around the golf course watching whatever group, you can have your little earbud in. And that is all I'm doing this year, Chris. Um, I mentioned to you before we started to record our chat that um, I haven't been very well for a while since um, catching COVID in November 21. So uh, this year, I've just been dipping my toe back into getting going again um, and trying to get back to full health. I haven't, I haven't played golf myself for almost two years now. So I've a wee bit of a way to go yet before I'm firing on all cylinders. But um, if that after this year, if Sirius XM still want me over for the majors, I would hope that at the very least I will be over for the majors next year. And you have one of the best blogs out there on the internet. Let our listeners know how they can read it. Well, this is um, I would this I'd give you a caveat a caveat to your listeners. If this is not, this is a very soft golf blog written by my sister Patricia Davies and me. And it's called madillgolf.com. And essentially, it, we started it after our father died. Um, back in, we started the blog in 2016. It's not a hard hitting news blog. Don't log on to it if you want to be kept up to date with things. We're not a results service. We're two opinionated Irish people. And we just write about things. It helps keep us in touch with our friends around the world. And we do have opinions on some things. We It triggers memories and reminiscences on others. And sometimes I have to tell my sister off because she hardly mentions golf at all. So <laughs> it's um, it, it's ju- it's a bit of a laugh and a soft thing. And thank you for mentioning it. And we'll be very pleased. If, we do have quite a lot of American readers, I have to say. And we get lovely comments from them. And there are people that we've met, you know, throughout our own journeys through the game. And as I say, it's a lovely way of keeping in touch. It is a fun read. Every, every one of the posts is a fun read. And, and I thank you for doing it. And thank you for doing what you do, because like I mentioned in your intro, you make listening to the game of golf on the radio or wherever we're doing it infinitely better because you're doing it. Not everyone can do what you do. You elevate broadcasting and on-course commentating to a level, in my opinion, that I haven't seen in my 40 plus years of playing the game and listening and watching the game of golf. You're absolutely splendid. And I thank you for doing that and for coming back on the show. Well, Chris, it's been my pleasure to chat again with you and let me finish with congratulating you on elevating your podcast to the top of the rankings for the last few years. You've done a wonderful job, so well done. Well, I appreciate that very much. Maureen, all the best to you and your family. I hope we get the privilege of catching up with you again real soon. Okay, anytime, Chris. You take care. You too. Thanks, Maureen. That is the great Maureen Medill, folks. They just don't come better as a person and certainly as an on-course broadcaster than Maureen Medill. And you got to go check out her blog post and her website. 
MadillGolf.com, M-A-D-I-L-L, golf.com. It is a fantastic read, and they're wonderful people, both she and her sister. So I can't say enough great things about Maureen Medill. If you're not listening to SiriusXM's PGA Tour radio or the BBC or whatever station she is broadcasting a golf tournament on, you are missing out on something special. I can't say enough how highly I recommend you find where Maureen is going to be on and you tune in and you listen that way. She is just absolutely spectacular, one of the all-time greats, and a wonderful person. I can't thank her enough. This is the third time I've gotten to spend some time with Maureen, and I'm already looking forward to number four. So again, MedillGolf.com is the site online, and you can follow her on Twitter at Mo, M-O, Golf 99, to find out the things that she is posting out there on social media. Fantastic stuff. Look forward to catching up with Maureen again very, very soon. All right, my friends, it is time for me to put a bow on this very special segment of Next on the Tee. Come back and join me July 18th. On the show will be Ron Syrak, Jay Delsing, John Mahaffey, and David Ogren. The following week, July 25th, our Director of Instruction, Tom Patry, of course, will be back, as will Jim Gallagher Jr., Lisa O'Hurley, and Shane LeBaron. So some great guests lined up for you. I hope you'll come back and be a part of the show with us. Folks, I can't thank you enough for continuing to make Next on the Tee a part of your golf content. Until next time, hit them straight, my friends.